So food is your passion. And luckily, you've also concluded that food is the solution. Well, healthy food is a large part of the solution to the human equation, you believe, and poor nutrition is a large problem. You believe that healthy eaters live healthy lives, both physically and mentally, and you want to share this solution with others in order to improve their lives. So you're convinced that increased consumption of healthy food will make the world a better place. And you know that you'd like to invest your time in pursuing some type of related initiative or profession. So now what? Now how do you do that? How should you go about improving people's lives through bringing healthy foods into them? Welcome to the Impactivism Podcast, where we explore how each of us, as individuals, can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number 16. This question is an incredibly broad one, with so many possible answers. You know, what can you do to bring healthy food into other people's lives? You know, perhaps we can cook for people. You know, that would bring food into their lives. We could physically feed them. That would bring food into their lives. Perhaps we can develop more appealing healthy foods that they want to eat or help maybe make existing healthy foods more available or more affordable or maybe even healthier, more nutritious. Perhaps we can educate children on the importance of healthy diets, or educate adults, or educate politicians, or fast food executives, maybe. Now, maybe we can promote a specific type of diet or expose the flaws of other popular diets that aren't actually as healthy as people might believe. You know, maybe we can promote the merits of a plant-based diet or the downsides of processed food. Perhaps we get into permaculture or urban farming. And all this just touches the surface of our most intuitive first thoughts on this topic. But there are so many more examples, and we will get to some of them, uh, you know, some of the less intuitive ones uh, later on. So stick around. Now, to help you decide how you'd prefer to interpret this question, you know, of how to bring more healthy food into people's lives, to decide, you know, what you'll do, how you'll do it, and why, I'd pose a few questions. So first, you know, as food is your passion, what food-related profession could you imagine taking up that would bring you the most possible joy, that would be the most enjoyable job that you can imagine? Perhaps this would be something like Maybe starting a food blog, bringing, uh, I don't know, writing a cookbook, maybe opening a food cart or working for the Food Network or a magazine. I don't know what else exists in that, that area. That's not really my territory, but perhaps there's other things. You know, that's just a, a few that I could think of. And when following this passion, 
you know, of course, you will be promoting the spread of healthy food into more people's diets in some way or another. And if their lives improve in any way at all, then this will definitely make the world that much better. But then I'd ask, which people, right? Who, whose lives are made better? Whose nutrition is improved as a result of your following your passion as joyously as you can? Now then switching gears a little bit, I'd ask a somewhat different question. I'd ask who in the world, you know, which people could benefit most from increased nutrition? Who stands to be most impacted by access to and consumption of better, healthier foods? And through what type of action might you, you know, one individual, might you stand to reach these people? Through what action can you bring them you know, more nutrition into their lives in one way or another? And much like the first question, this is a very broad one with many possible answers, but the question of who can benefit most this has less room, I think, for interpretation because we can really try to answer this question a bit more objectively. And we, we will try to do that here pretty soon, so stick with me again. And, and lastly, you know, with all this in mind, along the spectrum, say from following your most joyous passion for food in the most joyous possible way to uh, the other end of the spectrum of addressing food-related issues in the most impactful way that you can imagine, where on that spectrum do you think you'd be most likely, as yourself, knowing who you are, where on that spectrum do you think you'd be the most likely to find personal fulfillment? So this episode is an expansion of episode number 15, in which I discussed the differences between self-regarding and other-regarding actions. And I also talk, <laughs> I talked about kidnapping presidents, too, but that wasn't exactly the central theme. But if you haven't had a chance to listen, check it out. But this episode is neither about food nor <laughs> the merits of healthy diets, but rather about differentiating expanding on the idea of self-regarding and other-regarding actions and how they are quite different in the end, consequentially very different, though we don't often interpret them this way. It can be counterintuitive. And it's also about the, you know, the difference between impacting positive shifts in circumstances for our social circles and for our global circles. And I promise all those terms will make a lot more sense as we move forward. And the episode's also about you know, in another way, how doing good in the world relates to fulfillment, especially when doing large quantities of good and being thoughtful about what that actually really means and trying to find some level of understanding there and how much that can lead to fulfillment. So I mentioned the spectrum between the most joyous food-related profession you can possibly imagine and the most impactful one, because it's very often that this spectrum is quite broad. And in the short run, you know, we can be really inclined to you know, idolize the most joyous types of work and, and those people that are in these professions doing the things that might be our dream jobs. Yet, as much as we idolize these dream professions and the people in them, we rarely end up seeking them, unfortunately. Though we're <laughs> we're 
sometimes really good at taking jobs then convincing ourselves they were a dream come true and years later confessing to our own deceit but that's a different topic for another time and i think it's it's partially because there is so much more to an enriched fulfilled life than just having fun right but don't don't get me wrong finding joy is a really large part of both happiness and fulfillment and all things held constant it's of course much better to be doing something joyous than not be doing something joyous but uh, i think a day-to-day life full of fun is of course breathtaking it's an incredible way of living and i have found an amazing value at points in my life when my daily tasks were joyous ones right i i did find a lot of happiness and a lot of joy but some of those points you know i have to say that as much fun as i was having it wasn't quite as fulfilling as it could otherwise be I, maybe i can take my my jobs in the philippines and cambodia for example here where i was leading coral reef research ngos and a large part of my job was interacting with young energized awesome enthusiastic volunteers i was also scuba diving like five or six times a week sometimes to assist the marine biologists in their data collection when i had uh, any downtime between uh, more uh, administrative type work uh, that I was doing. And I was doing all this on tropical beaches, you know, on stilts over the water, our offices sometimes in paradise. So it, again, it included budgets, it included reports and logistics and, and advocating and, you know, everything else that goes along with leading an organization, of course, but a large part of the job was really fun. It was extremely tedious, and it was 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week, you know, being on call that whole time and having a lot of things come up. But uh, I, I guess I was too aware, I think at the time, of a lot of I, – I was carrying burden, I guess, by, by c- coming to see a more accurate model of the world that exists – um, having seen new realities that I couldn't sit and ignore. And because those realities existed, I couldn't find fulfillment in not addressing them, or I, I couldn't really find as much fulfillment in just having a lot of fun, as fun as these jobs were. But, you know, I was also, I, I guess I wouldn't have found fulfillment in at the time in doing the most impactful work I could possibly do that was joyless. You know, that would not be ideal either. But fulfillment, I think, would lie somewhere on the spectrum between these two extremes of just having fun or just doing the most possible, uh, most effective thing you can possibly do. And for me at the time, I thought it would lie closer towards impact than towards joy when it came to fulfillment. But in differentiating between fulfillment and happiness, I think happiness in the short term lied closer to joy and that's why i think we're often drawn to that while not really thinking about what our long-term fulfillment would look like and this idea led me to sacrifice a lot of myself in the name of trying to do good in the world you know taking jobs that i felt would position me to impact change but you know not necessarily ones that i was enjoying on a day-to-day basis and the rest of the jobs that i had outside of that coral reef organization was were very different uh, a very, very different type of work. Definitely no scuba diving. 
not surrounded by ultra pleasant people, not um, having a lot of fun when working 80 hours a week and uh, passing out from heat exhaustion and these types of things. So it's a really different reality. But I guess what I didn't realize at the time, and when I look back now, I just am so frustrated that I didn't understand this at the time, is that joy and impact, you know, in the actions that we take to try to make the world a better place, they're not actually inversely correlated, right? I do not need to sacrifice one entirely in order to achieve the other. Instead, depending on the type of work and what I have to offer and how I happen to align with this type of initiative, there are often maybe like sweet spots you know, on that spectrum where we can achieve a high level of joy and a high level of impact at the same time. And it's just about finding the areas of intervention or the air, maybe the professions or the hobbies or the type of volunteer work or where we can donate or anything else that, you know, has one of those sweet spots in it. So if, if I was making a video instead of a podcast, let me try to explain this. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd show a, no, this sounds really boring, but I'd make it really cool and make it beautiful and entertaining somehow, <laughs> I promise. And I can say that because I'm not actually making the video, but if I was showing you this, I <laughs> sounds horrible. I'd show you a collection of graphs. <laughs> so placing joy and impact side by side. And each graph would correlate to a specific type of action that we could potentially take, whether that's which causes we volunteer for, which careers we choose, how we donate, you know, how we invest our mental energy, what we choose to research, what uh, project we organize, uh, what blog we write or video we make, and the list goes on. So anything, any activities that we're doing that we can potentially conceive of as leading towards improving the world. And among this variety of graphs, <laughs> these really beautiful uh, aesthetic graphs that'd be really entertaining somehow, with a bird's eye view, we can step back and, and look at them. And we could really see, I think, in some of these activities and in some of these choices, uh, some have a high peak of potential joy that we could experience by taking this route, route and some have, I think, a really high peak of potential impact, you know. And others may be completely joyless or without potential of impact at all, or maybe go into the negative where doing that could actually make us miserable or, you know, doing that could actually do harm and not any good. So among them, though, we might find, you know, spot some of them with a really unique balance where an anomaly exists, a spike in the graph where both high levels of joy and impact happen to align. And, you know, the anomaly, the unique spike, I think that's all, I think that's where happiness and fulfillment in the short term and the long run and joy and impact, where they all come together. That place where you likely won't be doing the thing, you know, your absolute ideal dream job, if it was the case that the only thing we're thinking of is having the most fun every single day. It might not be that. And it might not be the thing that we've reasoned to be the most possible, the most impactful possible thing that we can do. But on both scales, we'll be really high, you know, really close to um, somewhere close to the top of that. And each for each of us, it's going to be different. And having that bird's eye view of each one of these uh, types of work that can allow us to really see this for the first time, because it's not really 
easy to recognize that when we don't think about it this way and look at so many different types of activities uh, we can we can involve ourselves in. And so just a, a quick side note, and maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's it's relevant. So there will be a segment in the future uh, discussing the difference between push decisions and pull decisions, which is sort of, I think, borrowing some terminology from economics and marketing and applying that to the way we reason before making a choice. So to be really brief, a push decision when it comes to trying to do good is first recognizing an issue, then looking at what you know we can immediately offer or what we can intuitively believe would be really nice to offer and then bringing forward that offering. And notice within that questioning, within that equation, there was definitely a question of what can I offer you know, right now, but there's never a question of what is really needed most and, and preferably what is really needed most than working backwards. Instead, we say, what do we have in working forwards? So in other words, uh, you know, a, maybe a shoe collector <laughs> hears about a famine in the Horn of Africa and donates pairs of shoes to the victims. And this isn't to say that there is zero value here, but to say there would be a magnitude of more effective approaches than of giving, uh, you know, highly valuable pairs of shoes to, you know, malnourished people. So on the other hand, a pull decision when it comes to trying to do good is recognizing an issue in the same way, but then asking what is most needed and building as accurate of a model of this issue and that reality as possible in order to see which of my potential offerings would best align with those needs. Or if I understand the needs and recognize that I really have nothing immediately to offer, you know, I'd, I'd ask a couple other questions. Can, can I acquire a skill or a resource that would be really valuable and useful, useful here? Or maybe I can concentrate on another issue in which I can achieve a lot more. So if I were, I guess, that shoe collector, it would probably not be me donating my vintage shoes to malnourished people again. What if there were, say, a shoe shortage instead of a famine and people were facing threats of footborne illnesses in this imaginary world? Don't know if that's a thing. Donating those shoes directly would still not likely be the best option, right? We could consider the alternative of, you know, I could sell all of these probably highly valuable shoes if they're collectibles i suppose i don't know what collectible shoes are exactly but i could sell them and then donate that amount of money to an initiative that's the most effective at addressing this issue that could maybe take all of those funds and i don't know make a hundred times as many shoes out of them or 50 times as many shoes effectively multiplying that impact by a hundred times or 50 times but I guess there also may be times when the push decision and a pull decision would actually be the same, but that's incredibly rare and unlikely. We have so many uh, biases and so many um, you know, in intuitions that can that are rarely the most effective ways of going about um, solving problems. So it's rare that that's the case, but you never know. So, okay, getting back to your mission to bring healthy diets to humans who can benefit from healthy food. So let's say your most joyous option, let's take the example of 
maybe writing a cookbook. And in the process of writing that cookbook, you'll also get to practice these recipes and share these meals with loved ones. This is absolutely a beautiful way of living and likely a fulfilling one if, you know, in certain ways, when if you're fulfilled by the company of loved ones. And you will absolutely have an impact, right? While practicing your recipes, you will expose family and friends to the possibilities of healthy food when prepared well, you know, showing people that healthy food can also taste good. And you will also show them that healthy food simply makes you feel more energized. And with this additional energy, you can do whatever you're doing in life, but hopefully do more of it, do it better, or use that energy to, I don't know, make some changes or get better at something that, that you value. And perhaps your reaching these friends will cause them to make changes that then in turn reach others, spreading that health more widely. Uh, and of course, that can happen. Also, while working on this cookbook, you will grow more informed and likely share that information with others in passing. And perhaps your wisdom on this topic will make others think, you know, whether that was a person you're standing next to in line, a colleague, a friend of a friend, or you know, your best friend or your family, direct family. And maybe that, I guess this tidbit of wisdom could spark a massive epiphany and change their life entirely forever. Right? Who knows? But it's, it's pretty hard to depend on that when so many alternative ways of impacting change are so much more reliable and when we have a lot more information to, to really support that results will come from our actions as opposed to the off chance or potential of that may be happening. And for some reason, wanting to believe that, you know, if it accidentally happens or if it happens I guess, naturally in this way without trying, then it's better. I think that's a pretty dangerous way of thinking about it if we're if it is the case that we want to improve the world. And lastly, if you share some of these recipes and photos of good-looking food, aesthetic food, right, on social media, perhaps you stand to bring that topic to the forefront of other people's attention spans. And this could do anything from inspiring one friend in your social network to eat one healthier meal today or maybe it influences dozens of friends to eat an extra healthy meal once a day for the rest of their lives. Who knows? But I don't know if one picture will be likely to do that, but you never know. Again, hard to depend on that, though, if we're trying to do as much good as we can. And there is no debate, I think, that this achieves a lot of good and will make the world, in the most literal sense, to whatever degree, a better place. It will improve the well-being of many lives. But then we have to ask the question of which lives are reached through these actions. You know, from what level of well-being to what level of well-being is their life changed? And is there anyone else who could possibly benefit more? Right? Well, if, if you're raised in that place where you know, healthy foods are accessible and affordable and are surrounded by people who already value healthy food, already and they have access to it you know maybe if your appreciation for healthy food came as a result of you know growing in a family that valued it or a friend circle that did or an in-group of some type that valued healthy food then the lives being improved are likely not those lives who could most benefit from knowledge you know of the value of and access to healthier diets
was touched on in episode 15. The people being reached here represent your social circle. And I'll come back to this in a few minutes and we'll dig a little bit deeper into what makes up our social circle. You know, what, which includes three rungs, the core social circle, our physical social circle, and our social networks. But quickly, let's look at the other end of the spectrum, you know, that most impactful one. And maybe again, it might not actually be a spectrum, but you know what I'm saying. So we asked the question of what's the most joyous way I could promote nutrition. Now, what's the most impactful way? And these answers might differ a little bit from those that first long list of potential ways of interpreting uh, how I can bring healthy food to people's to people's lives. So, when we step back, we can see that there are, you know, quite objectively, a magnitude of people in the world in extreme circumstances and suffering from the absence of nutritional diets in one way or another. So for a real example happening right now in 2017, the global head of all of the United Nations humanitarian initiatives overseeing all humanitarian-related agencies, he officially said in March this year of 2017 that Nigeria, Yemen, South Sudan, and Somalia collectively, as these four countries, they face the largest humanitarian crisis since the creation of the United Nations. And that 20 million people in these countries currently, right now, risk severe acute malnutrition at best and risk death at worst in the coming months if more resources are not allocated to addressing these food crises and famines. So, you know, and it's pretty incredible how little, you know, coverage that gets, how much we're paying attention to the atrocities of people on airlines being kicked off their flights and Donald Trump shenanigans occupying 90% of our news cycles and all the while, you know, 20 million people right now are facing the possibility of death from not being able to eat food. It's a pretty crazy world we live in. Our attention spans and what we respond to, and how all of this is put together sometimes blows me away, but that's a different topic for another time. It's really hard not to elaborate on that moment, but I'll, I'll refrain. So uh, even when, when it's not extreme circumstances, when there's, there's not that famine that's hit, there's not that major crisis, still, you know, on top of all that, 1.2 billion people in the world still live on the equivalent of what $1.25 per day can buy in America. Now, it's not them having $1.25 and then converting it to their currency and buying $10 worth of food in those countries. It's what we could buy with $1.25 in America. So if you were living in $1.25 per day in America, can you really possibly envision a way of maintaining a healthy diet? You know, it sounds impossible. So it's clear there are many people in the world who stand to benefit massively from improved access to nutritious diets in the broadest sense. Then we can look at ourselves, right, as a unique resource or yourself as a unique resource that can be invested in promoting access to nutritious diets and find that as, you know, as an American or anybody listening to this podcast, it's likely the case that you stand to potentially donate to 
highly impactful nonprofits already doing very good work to bring healthy food to those in the world needing it most. And you could even focus your energy on trying to make some more money in your life that you can donate. And this can be a very effective way of contributing to this cause if you really do want to. And another way you could creatively fundraise for these highly effective organizations, you could use your knowledge to research initiative uh, or other, I guess, maybe innovative ways of both understanding what keeps these people from healthy diets and how to solve that problem. You can look into what policies might help change this and try to contribute to fighting these policies. You can volunteer your time in highly valuable ways using your unique skill sets. You can influence uh, those closest to you and those within your reach somehow to pay attention uh, to this way of spreading healthy diets in the world. And you can choose a career path in a field where you stand to positively influence these ideas. But you know, that's, again, just a very short list of possible ways. But among this list, you know, I think of, of the most impactful things we can do, you know, thinking about it, some some of these might sound miserable, right? Some of these, I, like, I, I want nothing to do with that. And others might sound like the furthest thing from your confidence or comfort zones. You know, but until we investigate a little bit further and ask ourselves some questions, until we take the bird's eye view of how you know, impact and joy correlate within each of these these actions, then we'll never really know, right? But maybe some of these sounded like, yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what I want to do. Then that that is the ideal situation. You know, when you look at the most impactful possible opportunities and then from there, you find where you can have joy, that is incredible. You know, if if one of those align with something you want to do, you know, that's that's the best case scenario. Instead of thinking of the things that I, at the top of my head, would like to do and then see which one of them might possibly have some measurable, do some measurable amount of good, uh, that can be the difference of doing a hundred times and impacting a hundred times as much if starting from that place. And uh, so that's an example of poll decision making as opposed to push. But so I think when we decide we want to improve the world and address the issues, you know, we've come to understand there's one really important factor to keep in well there's a lot of factors (laughs) infinite factors but one that's really really important and this is a a, a huge i don't know foundation of this whole podcast and why i'm doing this so the difference between the average amount of impact we can achieve and the most impact we can achieve this is never small when it comes to the most consequential issues the difference between the, the best possible thing we can do and kind of the, the random one, a randomly selected path towards making the world a better place, it's rarely small. You know, but if it was the case that, say, the average, if we rolled a die and selected uh, some route towards improving nutrition in the world, including all the possible answers that we've, we've come across, if that was, say, 60% as impactful or even 30% as impactful, as the most impactful route, then all this thought and all this debate and I guess my trying to dedicate a large portion of my life to trying to, you know, explore all this and dig into it and understand it and share all these ideas, this that wouldn't really be worth it. All right. And I definitely, I would certainly not have this podcast if that was the case. I would not be 
<laughs> you know, going through all this effort to promote all of this, if it was the case that, you know, just our intuitive ways of thinking would achieve 60% as much or 50 or 40 or 30% as much as the most impactful ways. But the truth is that the difference between the average route or the, that intuitive route or the one, you know, our less thoughtful, less critical emotions push us towards, you know, are often the actions that result from push decision making, right? The difference of these impacts versus the most versus actions resulting from pull decision making, you know, the difference isn't 40 or 50%. It's not that we can achieve, say, time and a half as much good if we expend all this exhaustive energy and effort to try to overcome our cognitive biases and do the research and always stay critical and, you know, do what makes us sometimes uncomfortable for a period of time in order to get better at something or to accept a more accurate model of how the world works when that is inconvenient to us or challenging or requires energy and is often very uncomfortable. It's rather often somewhere between, you know, a dozen times as impactful, or even sometimes thousands of times as impactful, if we believe all humans equally deserve not to suffer and to live well. And if we believe the same thing about animals, that if we don't believe that cuddly, <laughs> cute animals with round features are more deserving of well-being than those we perceive as ugly or with sharp features. So please keep that in mind. I, I know I've communicated that in the podcast a lot, but I can't emphasize that enough. And that's what we often don't really realize. We haven't fully understood the the degrees of difference between the average approach and the most impactful approach. And sometimes the average approach to, to doing good can really just be quite misled and maybe has no impact in the end. And the that would make the most impactful infinitely more uh, valuable. So I could definitely go on and on and on about about this important understanding, something to really keep in mind, but I'll, I'll leave it at there for now, and I'm sure I'll touch on that more in episodes to come. So when we think about doing good, right, we tend to think... Uh, this, I guess, is a binary discussion of either doing good or we don't do good. And, you know, that's as far as we analyze it in a lot of cases. But when we think of it this way, we're preventing ourselves from quantifying and qualifying this good as if it's black and white, you know, not the entire color palette. This is the difference, you know, maybe between loaning your wealthy friend a dollar at the checkout counter when they don't have enough cash and finding a cure for cancer and malaria and sharing it with the entire world for free, all right? Both actions are, of course, doing some measurable amount of good. And in both cases, your action does make the world a better place, right? In the world in which you don't give the dollar to your friend versus the world you do give the dollar to your friend, it's a little bit better. In the world you cure malaria, it's a lot better. But What's the degree to which they make the world a better place? How much better? And not to say that our minds process these two forms of doing good as anything similar, but our research shows us, you know, with a lot of certainty that when numbers get big and ideas become a little bit more 
abstract and when solutions are less intuitive and there's a lot of information to follow and our attention spans are pretty short, we lose sight of quantity and of quality, but quantity for sure. You know, so it could be the case that saving 74,000 lives will sound really similar to saving 470,000 lives, right? And our minds might be inclined to interpret them somewhat similarly if we're not really thinking critically or we're not aware of our scope in sensitivity bias. And it's also interesting, you know, on top of that to see, sad, you know, interesting and sad <laughs> to see how often we neglect to sufficiently differentiate between the good we're doing uh, and the good that we're capable of doing and judging our, our, you know, ourselves, maybe judging ourselves is a bad way to put it, but estimating how much good we're doing and the level of satisfaction we get with that, you know, hopefully we can keep in mind what we're capable of and what we're doing and not just what we're doing, right? If it's the case that we want to do good, if it's the case that we want to feel like we're doing good, then don't think about our potential. Just think about what we're doing. And that can be much more convenient for our heads, but in the end, we're not going to get so much done. And that idea of scope and sensitivity bias was the theme of episode number 14. So do check that out if you get a chance. And one part, I think, of defining quality and quantity of good is looking at the beneficiaries of our efforts to do good. You know, whose circumstances improving due to our actions and from what level of well-being to what level of well-being are these lives being improved. So when considering who can benefit most from healthy food, we saw that our friends can definitely benefit, right? And those closest to us, those within our social circles, but those living in famine will very clearly benefit more from having access to an additional healthy meal. So in this sense, you know, it can be helpful to try to classify the groups that we stand to impact, who stands to benefit most by being reached, and what types of actions reach which target groups. So we can differentiate this. Uh, when we do this, we can really help ourselves understand the quality and quantity of good that we're doing and it can help us really i think better employ our good intentions to achieve the most um, when it is the case that we want to reach this particular group and we have a reason for wanting to reach them so i've discussed this briefly in episode 15 again and ideally if you haven't listened to episode 15 maybe think about pausing this episode to jump back there uh, and listen to that and pick up where you left off but in case that's not in the cards and uh, you're going to carry on, then I'll elaborate here and revisit this idea really briefly. So in a way, we have uh, two different circles that we can reach. Uh, the, the first being our social circle and the second being our global circle. And each circle has a few layers, uh, three to be exact. And I'll try to break them down here really quickly. So, but as I do this, just keep in mind that this is a framework of general ideas and uh, plenty of exceptions surely exist and this isn't purpose or purpose this isn't perfectly encompassing of everything, but it can be used as a I think a thought tool to help us understand the impact we stand to make through our actions. And with this all in mind, if you find any gaps in this idea, any logical inconsistencies, any flaws of any kind. Uh, you know, this is an idea that I've been formulating for a while and I'm still not, you know, I don't think it's perfect yet. So please reach out and let me know your thoughts so I can continue to refine uh, these definitions. If 
if you think something doesn't make sense, if you recognize something's backwards or I've contradicted myself, uh, anything, let me know. I hope it's not the case, but I hope that it, if, if it is the case, I become aware of it so I can improve on it and uh, refine this a little bit more, this framework. So our social circle first. In brief, it consists of those that we stand to reach socially, right? Anywhere from reaching on a daily basis in person uh, from time to time via even social media or another platform that you communicate on. And that also goes to the people you live with or uh, your partner, your best friend, or uh, your immediate family who you see very often, or that 2000th friend on Facebook that maybe sees your post from time to time uh, that you're not quite sure where you met. <laughs> so they are reached, you know, incidentally, often by being exposed to the way that you live your life. And also they're reached more deliberately through your purposeful intentions and uh, sharing of content, you know, purposefully deciding, intending to to take a deliberate action to impact their life in a way. And so whatever form that might all take on, I guess, maybe on the spectrum from mentionings and passing to year-long in-depth debates to in investigative documentary series that you share with your platform. And some portions of your social circle are also reached by your direct benevolent actions, right? Purposefully helping and lending a, a hand. And we'll touch on that. So our social circles, like I said, consist of three rings, our core social circle, physical social circle, and our social network. So the core social circle is the one, of course, closest to us. And you know, the work that we do on ourselves, becoming more emotionally intelligent, becoming less stressed and less angry, just kinder, happier, more healthy people, this all rubs off on this core circle quite directly. And you know, as we talked about in, in episode 15, our self-regarding actions to improve our own well-being and minds, you know, to grow wiser and more compassionate, friendly, all, all of those traits that we can work on and, and build up within ourselves, this will again all rub off in our core social circles too. And this can, you know, within these circles can be not just people, but pets, you know, our, the environment that is our yard or those animals and environments that we very directly impact on a regular basis. If it's a trail we walk every day or um, if it's a roommate's dog that we see quite often, you know, anything along these lines. So all of these people's animals and environments are exposed enough to our way of living, you know, in, in every way, whether that's our anger or our calm, you know, exposed to our positive attitudes and to our negativity, to our stress and to our, you know, poise and relaxation. So I think they're also most exposed to our ideas and the wisdom that we can share and the useful information that we can bring forward in conversation. But at the same time, they're exposed to our less nourishing, less healthy, less positive uh, conversations that we tend to bring forward. And I, I emphasize enrichment there so we can have, you know, very upbeat, positive conversations. Uh, but if none of them are very enriching, um, you know, we stand less to grow from them. We can be, you know, momentarily entertained, but not necessarily we don't grow as people. So in general, these are the indirect beneficiaries of all of, you know, uh, our self-work and personal development. 
and the way that we carry ourselves socially. They are reached through, you know, physical time spent together uh, through rubbing off on them. They are the, the people most reached by the ideas of, you know, I, I guess a lot of people take this approach. I, I'll fill my glass, become the happiest person I can be and let that spill over to others. So that kind of idea, if if what we're wanting to do is improve the world through improving the lives or rubbing off on our social circles, this is a, a or our core social circle rather, this is a strong tactic. Uh, but unfortunately, I think people often think of that idea of filling my glass and letting it spill over as the way to make the whole world better. But I, I hope, you know, at the end of this episode, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case, but I, 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 I'm, I think I'd make the argument against it, unfortunately. And, you know, that sucks. But if we're trying to do as much good as we can, then building as accurate of a model as of how the world works is the objective and working from that. And, you know, from a lot of this, I've found that that, that might not be the most accurate model, unfortunately. So filling our, ourselves in and becoming the best person we can be, that will improve the lives of those closest to us. You know, and I, and I can call this kind of uh, maybe change through osmosis or impact through osmosis by rubbing off on others. And we'll see later that that doesn't really happen in a direct way uh, outside of our social circles and uh, rarely even outside of our core social circle. So even like other other friends. So outside of that core social circle, the next ring is the physical social circle which consists of those that are not the closest to us, but who, you know, you interact with in a meaningful way, whether that's a one-on-one -on -one interaction from time to time or in, you know, somewhat intimate group interactions. So this can be, you know, casual on a regular basis or in-depth for just maybe one minute in passing, uh, you know, maybe once or twice in your life. But you don't interact enough to incidentally rub off on them in life-changing ways but you can definitely rub off in ways that can you know affect their day or their week maybe so think of the friends that you get together with for a group dinner every couple of months or the family that you see from time to time on holidays or the friends you'd maybe like to be better at keeping in touch with those are the types of people that would fit into the physical social circle and you'll be unlikely to change their lives through incidental, you know, change by osmosis as you're not in direct contact with them enough to really rub off on them in this, you know, profound way. But that's not to say it's impossible, right? Just highly irregular and unlikely. And this isn't really, again, if we want to do the most good, it's not a really dependable way of improving lives, of just being really, really um, happy ourselves and then hoping other people notice that and catch on. Um, of course, that's good, but, it, you know, there's a lot of other ways uh, we can improve lives. Um, but you can impact them in life-changing ways through deliberate actions, right? Through saying, to really stepping in for, to have an extra insightful conversation at the right time or give a really timely comment that, you know, makes them think uh, or sharing a really provoking or valuable information when the time is right, doing favors, offering helping hands in whatever way uh, you you can that is targeted and purposeful and fills some type of purpose to um, really accomplish something. So 
And you reach all of them through, again, social engagements, gatherings, you know, in community due to proximity, sometimes through work, maybe colleagues that aren't um, the ones sitting next to you in the office. So these, that, there's your, your uh, physical social circle. And the last part of the social circle is your social network. And this one's a lot more straightforward. It consists of those you reach via social media. And it also includes those you reach by any expanded platform that you have for sharing information on a somewhat regular basis. So, so if you have a blog or if you write a column for a newspaper or for a magazine, you have a YouTube channel with subscribers or a podcast, right? A radio show or something. These are, you know, ways to increase the reach of your social circle. And, you know, if you happen to have a massive readership or following, then the way that you think about what actions you can take to do the most good is, is changed by having access to this kind of resource. But we'll assume that most of you listening don't have 5 million engaged Twitter followers who will vote for whoever you endorse or donate to whatever cause you recommend. But if you do have that <laughs> and you're listening to this uh, and you're interested in how to make the most of it, write me a private message and I would love to have a conversation because I'm full of ideas of how to take advantage of that in order to do very good things in the world. So do reach out just in case. Open offer. So back to our social network. So unfortunately, when we target our social network as our means of making the world a better place, we often seem to be reaching, uh, I, I, I guess, doing this as a result of a push decision, right? As opposed to a pull, pull decision, if that makes if that makes sense. And in other words, when we are maybe upset by an issue existing in the world and we want to do something about it, we often feel so disempowered to make most types of actions um, to uh, to address you know this issue. So in a really classical push decision-making process, we end up expressing our views via social media because this this is really easy. We have that phone in our pocket and we can just you know write a quick post instead of um, you know trying to think about going to the epicenter to volunteer which again i don't think that's the most effective way either but you know the, there's a lot of different ways of trying to reach out to a politician or you know something these these are definitely more complicated and they seem harder they seem less within our immediate uh scope of offerings so we utilize that and and whether we take additional steps uh, after that if we once we leave that passionate or aggressive post if we do um, continue to take other actions. I, I hope we do. That's up to each of us to make sure that we try to do that and we don't, you know, kind of use social networks as a way of getting our, expressing ourselves and then, you know, not taking any actions. That's so unfortunate. Um, sometimes there can be some moral licensing involved there. If we make this comment, then we can sometimes be less inclined to actually do anything about it, unfortunately. And that is episode seven, maybe six, five. No, not five. Somewhere between six and eight was on uh, moral licensing. So do check out that episode if you're interested. So our social networks, again, they are reached, of course, by sharing content, but this can be really broad. It can be written content, recorded uh, photos, graphics, videos, memes, or shared creations of any type, whatever we can, we can really put online, I suppose, or in print. So or in theaters or anything else. 
So their ideas are provoked, you know, these people, by your ideas and what you choose to share and communicate, how you choose to share and communicate it. And they can really be influenced if your content reaches them effectively and hopefully reaches them, um, you know, in, in ways that provoke other actions to be taken that are more direct than them reaching their social circles, if that makes sense. And it's rare that, you know, content communicated passionately, I mean, different topic, but content communicated passionately, it's rare that this will affect, you know, it will be as effective as dispassionate communication, if that makes sense. In other words, right, yelling how angry you are about a political happening won't likely change anyone's mind or move anything forward, but sharing some really uh, concrete data, you know, or uh, some research that exposes that this political happening was backwards and is going to lead to something negative, and then tagging along with that a some information about how individuals can take specific steps to combat it. You know, maybe that's you know uh, creating a petition or spreading a petition, uh, something along these lines. That could be more effective than passionate uh, communication usually turns out to be. So in addition to our social circles, we have our global circles. And our global circles consist of those we don't directly interact with in life, right? But who and what we have the potential to reach in order to either improve their circumstances or inspire them to improve the circumstances of others or of more. And keep in mind that our global circle will not exclude our countries or our communities or even our families or any of our in-groups, but will rather include all living beings, you know, or whether if we're talking about people, if we're talking about animals or environmental causes or whatever it might be, it will include all of them on the same playing field, right? From which to make unbiased decisions about how to benefit the most, right? So much like our... Social circles, our global circles, include three rings. They include our direct beneficiaries, influencers, and high-impact strangers. And these are all, for lack of, a, of better terms, again, these are all newly formulated ideas I've been working on and a framework I've been trying to put together. So if, if uh, you know, there's any, anything that sounds flawed, um, please let me know. And I'll try to uh, work that out a little bit better. If you think of better names or... or um, you recognize logical inconsistencies, uh, let me know. I guess I'm just, you know, putting all this together to help debunk some common misleading intuitions that prevent us from impacting the things we authentically care about. So any of your help uh, to make this a, a better model would be very helpful. So our direct beneficiaries. So this consists of anybody out there in the world, any cause at all, that stands to potentially uh, be impacted in any way. But because this is so massive and this in incorporates pretty much everything, you know, it is a, there's a really strong emphasis here on the importance of prioritization uh, in, in a world characterized by seemingly infinite shortcomings and finite time, energy, and resources on our behalf. So the top of that necessitated priority list starts with, I think, those most vulnerable 
most uh, circumstantially trapped, most in need, most neglected, uh, humans, non-human animals, and causes that could most benefit from any given unit of good in the broadest sense. So put another way, they are those living beings starting from the lowest quality of life on a global scale and causes starting from the most destitute positions, but whose circumstances can be impacted most by our actions. And that, you know, there's a lot to that. So that's oversimplified, but you understand what we're getting at. So they are vulnerable groups of humans who live in circumstances that, you know, present challenges you and I do not face whether related to poverty, to health, to justice, equality, well-being in, you know, any magnitude of ways. Um, and there are so many other circumstances of, of misfortune, but um, you, you get the idea. So this, this, can, this can be anything. And they are non-human animals in, you know, I guess defenseless to human exploitation, including those 60 billion farmed animals slaughtered each year and each year. And species that are threatened, right, as a result of our growth and our greed. And there's a lot of them out there. Uh, so these are all part of it. Also, falling here are ecosystems. Oceans and lakes and forests, a single tree, a river, a creek, the environment as a whole. All of this is encompassed within this. But remember, for you know animals and for our environment, you know, there must also be... Uh, priority lists if we hope to do the most good, right? If our objective in addressing environmental causes is to, you know, have our direct um, observable environment look more aesthetic, that's very different than wanting to do the most good for the environment. And if we want to, you know, do some good for the type of animal that we happen to like, that's quite also different from doing the most good for animals in general and for the most vulnerable ones. And generally speaking, the cuddliest and the cutest animals wouldn't fall under the most exploited or most neglected species as they are often you know, receiving thousands of times the resources and attention, you know, per animal unit of suffering, if not, I mean, maybe millions in some cases, than the most vulnerable and ex exploited animals, which you know, a few of them would definitely be chickens, would be hens and, and pigs, among many, many others. So the top priority direct beneficiaries are reached through often direct interventions of organizations and structured initiatives through education, through some types of outreach and advocacy, through you know, donating to or volunteering with entities doing this, uh, leading these initiatives to changing policies, whether that's of governments, of companies, or of other structures, also through lessening personal harm that we're doing through decreasing our negative consumption and sometimes, but I think rarely through increasing our positive consumption. And so so that wraps up our uh, direct beneficiaries. Uh, again, that's a massive group, but the real emphasis there is prioritizing by necessity because so much suffering does exist in the world. Um, you know, we can do so much for those needing it most, but we can also do lots for people not needing it as much. And that's also beautiful. But again, if we uh, aspire to do the most good, then that prioritization is really vital. And the second rung of our global circle uh, are consists of influencers. 
So these are the decision makers, the trendsetters, those in positions of power and authority. They're the politicians, industry leaders, uh, social leaders of some type, movement leaders, celebrities, and that list goes on. So anybody in the world who people you know either choose to follow or have to follow, right? If if somebody's elected into position, they were voted on, and then the choices they make, um, they can set laws that their citizens have to follow in a way. So they can be reached through many mechanisms, but generally it's most effective to influence the influencers very, very strategically. So there will eventually be a full episode on this very topic on influencing influencers one day down the line. But to quickly touch on this in a very oversimplified fashion, now it can be best to first identify the priority and neglected cause and then identify who may be in position to influence change, desirable change on this topic. So once we've targeted that, those influencers, you know, do your research and understand what types of incentives they are likely to respond to and which of those incentives or disincentives you stand to somehow affect. That's a very good starting point. And then you can look at you know, who, you, who might be able to join forces with you to create something of a coalition if a lot of people or other entities share a common goal in trying to influence this um, this influencer to make some changes or just in general to try to reach the same outcomes, then combining forces can be very effective. It's, it's good to ask what obstacles you might face along the way and be very prepared. Maybe what risks are there of backfire if you try to influence this person in this way? Could they bite down harder on what they're doing that's causing the problem? Uh, or, you know, be their ego comes in the way of them admitting that maybe things aren't going right, so they, uh, they do the wrong thing even more. Uh, you ask, we should ask what resources you know might be worth gathering and investing in this, and so on. So it's just kind of a strategic structure of thought that could be helpful in going about influencing influencers, but more on that another time. So depending on what type of incentives they respond to and you know which of these incentives can be manipulated, a few ways of reaching influencers might you know be through sending a closed letter, making a phone call, arranging a meeting possibly. And a lot of these, sometimes this is a lot easier than it sounds. People seem untouchable, but you know, if you really try, you can reach them and your voice can be heard. And if you can communicate that voice really effectively, it can go a long way and it, it's worth trying. So also you can publish maybe an open letter that can spark discussion and increase pressure if that public pressure is an incentive that will help make them make those changes. And then also you can you know, utilize those incentives when you can later write that letter or get that closed meeting to talk to them and say this was in you know the public eye, so it's in your best interest to, to make this choice. You can start a petition or sign and help circulate an existing petition. Again, those can all be utilized as well as time goes on uh, when people get a closed door meeting. Uh, create some type of creative campaign with some of those allies in that coalition you've put together. Uh, share some research, even engage them you know, on social media platforms to start some debates in the public. And that can be very effective. And that list goes on too, like most of the lists. So uh, you know, here, think of lobbyists, think of advocates. Uh, I think those are good examples. But again, these types of tactics can also be used just by citizens, by individuals um, who are not 
professionally practicing as lobbyists or advocates. And, you know, though the wisdom that advocates and lobbyists use uh, to get things done can also be absorbed by individuals. And we can try to act in the same same way. Overall, the goal is to help persuade them to make big decisions that, you know, are, have widespread impacts on uh, beneficiaries of that decision. And when the expected value of investing your time here is high, it ends up being worthwhile. So this can mean that, you know, we are unlikely to influence a particular influencer, but when the cost is low, you know, like the cost of writing a letter, you know, to us, energy-wise and time-wise, that doesn't cost a lot. And the potential, maybe the potential outcome as unlikely as it might be, is incredibly high, then this can be really worthwhile. And if your position in the world, your particular skill sets, your particular understanding, your knowledge and capabilities, uh, maybe your contacts as well, who you, who you can reach, whatever it is, you know, if you align with this uh, type of strategy of change, then you stand to do a great deal of good in the world by focusing a lot of energy on this brand of creating change. So something to keep in mind. And then quickly, the last rung of our global circle consists of high impact strangers. And you know, those are the high impact strangers, again, for lack of a better term, maybe if anybody has a suggestion of what else we can call it. It's those whose lives, you know, they, they live lives that impact how the world functions and their small choices then can really add up, right? So they, they make choices in their lives that stand to significantly impact things, whether positively or negatively, and pushing them towards the positive side will go a long way. So they consist of those who consume a great deal, who are living in wealthy countries and wealthy communities, who are relatively wealthy themselves. And remember that those living at the poverty level of $11,880 per year in America are within the wealthiest 15% of people on earth. Now, and again, that's not based on how much they make, but already adjusted for how far their money goes in you know, home economies elsewhere. So as a quick example, if you're, I guess, an environmentalist, you consider yourself an environmentalist and you're trying to limit your annual waste, right? Think of how much effort you end up putting into cutting down your, say, five units of annual waste down to three units. And if you consider yourself an environmentalist, your baseline of five is probably below the average uh, to begin with this year. But then we can consider the high-impact stranger who consumes in such an excessive and wasteful way that they produce, say, for example, 100 units of waste per year. And I can definitely conceive of a lot of people if the environmentalist and the very conscious consumer uh, has five units of waste, then maybe there's definitely people out there with a lot more than 100 units. But uh, we'll, we'll use that for this example. So if you can conceive you know, of a way to influence them or to convince them to waste 2% less of that 100 units, then you'd effectively be achieving the same net impact as all of your effort to decrease your consumption from five units to three, right? And if you can somehow convince them to waste 6% less, right? So from 100 units down to 94, then you will already be achieving a larger net impact than you could possibly achieve yourself by expending you know, the exhaustive year-round effort and mental energy it would take to round your your own waste down to zero. So 
going from five to zero, that takes five units of waste out of the, the dump. And if you convince a high impact stranger just to cut 6% of theirs, that would achieve more in the end. So these high impact strangers are reached often through content creation and sharing of ideas, whether that's articles, books, blogs, uh, videos, documentaries, music, poetry, stories, campaigns that include any of this, maybe even advertising, marketing, uh, workshops, events, uh, talks, and so on. So in all of these cases, right, this, this is a really important takeaway. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but if there's anything we take away, this is really important. You know, in all of these cases within our global circle, you know, there is really no such thing as change through osmosis, right? We're not, by filling our own glass, we're not going to spill over to the global poor. We're not going to spill over to, you know, those most exploited, right? So we're becoming kinder, happier, healthier, you know, more pleasant people will without a doubt improve the lives of those closest to us, but that alone does not directly affect the rest of the world incidentally, right? So if our main way of making the world a better place, again, is filling our own glass and letting it spill over, we just simply do not reach those in the world needing it most. And if we're talking about the quantities and quality of good we're doing, then there's this is a really large equation. So, of course, we could rub off, you know, there's a potential to rub off on someone who then takes deliberate action to reach global circles. But I guess if we think of it this way, if, if life were a game and you'd win the game by being responsible for improving the world as, uh, more than the next guy, you know, you wouldn't really want to depend on this strategy of just incidentally... <laughs> you know, rubbing off on those around you. you. I don't think that that would be a recommended strategy of the best players of this game uh, or if they would ever possibly win. You know, the strategy would be taking deliberate, strategic, thoughtful actions. And it, that's especially the case when you can rub off on those closest to you by being pleasant while reaching global circles deliberately as well. So they're not mutually exclusive at all. And uh, we can do both of them. So with this in mind, as mentioned in episode 15, our becoming more pleasant, enriching people to be around, and our working through our internal issues that keep us so distracted, uh, this can make it easier for us to figure out how to reach our global circles more effectively as time goes on, right? But we also have to keep in mind that, you know, maybe upgrading from a hammer to a nail gun you know, that act of, of procuring a nail gun, that, that does not result in a built bridge, right? And thinking really hard about how this bridge ought to be built, uh, maybe praying for the bridge or sending positive intentions to the bridge or, or meditating on the idea of the bridge or, you know, working out uh, to get stronger so that you can really carefully place materials and build the bridge the bridge very precisely. Um, writing on Facebook about why this bridge really needs to be built or attending a march supporting the bridge. You know, none of these actions actually build the bridge. You know, a lot of them have a lot of value in different ways. So you, you still, you know, in the end, have to take the deliberate action Take that thoughtful action to build the bridge. But, you know, upgrading tools, uh, you know, mobilizing more support, 
increasing knowledge and understanding, these will all really help you choose the type of bridge to build, you know, how best to build it, and hopefully get a lot of help in the process to make it really effective and efficient and uh, to gain a lot of support, share the burden. But, uh, you know, that, that ha- the bridge has to be built deliberately. Um, so I, I hope that made sense. I guess, in other words, uh, those closest to us can be impacted, of course, through osmosis, though, you know, through us rubbing off on them. But those global priority causes in a world with such a magnitude of extreme suffering, you know, those suffering most, you know, those most vulnerable and most exploited, they simply are not reached this way. And that sucks. And I wish (laughs) more than anything that that were the case. And life could be so simple if that were true. And again, if that were true, then I wouldn't be on this, you know, putting together this podcast. I, I do enjoy it, but I, there are a lot of other things that I, I'd find more joy in talking about, right? Um, anyway, but I guess with, with some thoughtfulness, with some deliberate actions, we absolutely can reach the most in need and those closest to us at the same time. And isn't that amazing? So I know this was a really, really long episode. So thank you for getting through it. Uh, If you've noticed lately, I've been exploring with this format a little bit of doing some longer episodes a bit less regularly, but I'm not sure (laughs) what I'm going to proceed with. This was a bit of an experiment the last couple weeks. So... If you have any thoughts on which format you'd prefer, you know, reach out and I'm going to be making decisions of, of how I'll stick with it here pretty soon. If I'll go with some shorter episodes a couple times a week, uh, maybe once a week, or if I'll do longer episodes less regularly. So let me know your thoughts. Uh, just to wrap up here quickly to revisit some key takeaways. Uh, you know, I think that we really have to keep in mind uh, one big takeaway that Again, that difference between the average, most intuitive, uh, random selection of a of, of way of doing good versus the most impactful, it's not just 50% better. Sometimes it's a thousand times better. And when we want to do the most good, we got to keep that in mind. And that's, that's maybe one of the most consequential uh, distinctions to, to be made or ideas to keep in mind, among many others, but it's very important. Uh, what else do we talk about? Uh, that the idea of change by osmosis, uh, that's beautiful. And I wish it was the best way that we could improve the world. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the priority issues, because it's the case that so much suffering and pain does exist, and because it's the case that we're empowered to do something about it, then that change by osmosis is still breathtaking, but it's, it's just not the only way. And it's definitely not the way of reaching those most in needed. But again, we can do it all at the same time. And that's amazing. You know, how often is it the case that we have the, that, uh, you know, the luxury of not having to choose between things, even though I think some of us think we have to or live in a way that shows that we have to. I definitely did at some point, you know, um, and I also thought that I had to sacrifice myself in order to impact something. And I didn't realize that joy and impact can be combined into one. And that's amazing. Uh I suppose that's that's most of it. So thank you so much for making it through this very lengthy episode. And I'm still dragging on here. I should just end this. So uh, if you like this idea, share it with others. Uh, if you appreciate the podcast in general, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. If you really like it, you can leave a review really quickly. That goes so far to spread the word and boost kind of 
uh, searchability on iTunes so the word um, reaches more people. And that's the whole reason for all of this, to offer ideas that can be put to use to improve the world. So do share, you know, put it on social media too if you'd like. That would be awesome. I like the Facebook page. Send me any comments. Ask me any questions. I want to have conversations. Uh, if you have any ideas of awesome people, you know, that are in alignment with the ideas I'm discussing, uh, who might be uh, good people to interview, uh, reach out and let me know. And uh, I'll be back with uh, another episode uh, very soon. 